Welcome to another episode of the No Ceilings Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Metcalf. This week, I'm incredibly excited to bring on a guest whose work I've admired, consumed, and enjoyed for quite some time now, Coach Adam Spinella. Coach, how's it going? Hey, doing great. Tyler, thank you for having me on here. Always good to talk some hoops and uh, love what you guys are doing over No Ceilings. So glad to be a part of it tonight. I appreciate that. And so I'm since I followed you for a while, Dan, there are a million reasons why I would want to bring you on. Uh, but so we at least have some sort of guide and can keep somewhat of focus without completely going off the rails. I wanted to use your recent FIBA piece um, from the other week as a guide. And when I saw you wrote it, I got really excited uh, because I assumed that it would bring some optimism to some prospects who are kind of currently struggling or got out to slow starts and not necessarily living up to the their preseason expectations. Uh, but that wasn't necessarily the case. Um, but instead of me paraphrasing for you, uh, let's just kind of start with an overview of what you found uh, when you wrote this article and what the research you did um, before we kind of dive into these prospects. Yeah, sure. So I, I had started by looking at two guys that were really disappointing starting the year and falling down draft boards in Peyton Watson and Patrick Baldwin Jr. And a lot of the discourse around both of them was really centered on they're not in great situations for them as prospects, you know, and again, we'll dive into the specifics of each in a moment, but what I was really hoping to do was go back to some other high level competition film and be able to see what they looked like when they were positively contributing on a team that won a gold medal this past summer and were surrounded by other great talent where they could have been, role players or pieces that might resemble what they look like more in an NBA setting. So that was really the goal and and the output of the article obviously found some other takeaways from a couple of other guys that played on, on that FIBA team by going back and watching those games. But really the, the aim of it was for two guys in Watson and, and Baldwin who really entered the season with a lot of lottery or top 10 hype to them and have both disappointed thus far. Yeah. So Baldwin and Watson are the, are the big names at the top, um, but you, all, you also touched on Kennedy Chandler and Mike Miles, who are also on that team, um, who we will also dive into tonight. But um, before we get into them, what what was some of the like the more historical stuff that you found looking back at previous teams and how the, how their situations or production there has kind of transferred to the NBA or or maybe not? Yeah, it's a, it's it was a great question. So part of Anytime you're trying to filter out the importance from one team or one level to how Mm -hmm. it projects to the NBA, you have to look backwards, right? You have to see what other players who have been at that level before have found NBA success. And it's no different with a FIBA U19 team. So the United States has had a lot of success winning gold medals other than I believe it was what 2018 or 2016 with Canada, uh, who was Mm -hmm. able to, to take the gold there. But You know, the biggest takeaway for me was the last iteration of this in 2020 was super stacked, right? Last time they played. Yeah. And they had guys like Kate Cunningham and Evan Mobley, and they were just, they were loaded with talent. If you look at all other years, the roster typically of the 12 guys that make the the U19 team from the United States, maybe three or four of them end up being really good pros who sign second contracts and and are really strong in the NBA. That there is a common thread of maybe some of those guys not making it to the NBA level. So that was my first indication that, you know, this can't be a crutch for some of these guys that we should just say they're not succeeding well in college, but they made the, you know, they made the Olympic team. They made the Mm -hmm. U19 world cup team because of that. They're just so talented. No, that's, that's not at all what it is because there's enough history and data behind us to suggest that if they don't perform well in college after that, they're not going to all of a sudden flip a switch in the NBA and become a really, really good player once again. Yeah. Um, I, I thought that was really insightful because I, I feel like during the draft process, whenever you hear people reference, oh, he played well in FIBA or, oh, this is what he did in FIBA. It's always like, oh, well, that, that that's a better example of what he, he'll be than this college. And that's maybe not necessarily the case, which it, 
is a little concerning given the guys that we're going to talk about here today. And I want to start out with Patrick Baldwin Jr. Because for some people entering the season, he was the number one overall prospect uh, at 6'9 with his shooting form. It's understandable as to why that would be. And he's fallen pretty far down a lot of people's boards. I'm still really trying to be patient and not being too drastic with it. I It's still mid, mid to late lotto for me because I think that combination of size and shooting, it's really hard to pass up. Um, but you kind of mentioned it earlier, and may, may, maybe that's just the case about not necessarily being in the right situation. So wh- why do you think Baldwin has gotten off to such a slow start and had a really rocky you know, f- first half of the season with a Milwaukee team that's not very good. Is it something he's doing? Is it that he's just not in the right situation? W- what have you seen um, from his game tape? Yeah, it's it's a little bit of everything with what's going on in Milwaukee, right? So anytime you are a really good three-point shooter, no matter if it's off the catch, off the bounce, the easiest way for you to get shots is by other people creating for you, right? Mm-hmm. Like Steph Curry, the degree of difficulty in the shots that he takes is enormous, but he's able to get a lot of good catch-and-shoot looks because the Warriors run a ton of stuff for him and have the high IQ ball handlers and playmakers that can find him. Baldwin probably has one of the worst backcourts in college basketball at the Division I level right now. So in terms of teammates who can create easy looks for him, it doesn't exist. And now when you're this big-name, top-ten type of prospect that shows up in the Horizon League, you're going to be expected to do a little bit more to carry your teammates. So not only is Baldwin inefficient because he's not getting high quality looks, you know, on the open catch and shoots, but he's also trying to do way too much with the ball in his hands, which is not his game. He has a little bit of shake and just turnaround jumper form in the mid range because he is six foot nine and taller than a lot of guys that are going to guard him. He can simply rise up and shoot over them on some turnarounds, but he is best served. Excuse me coming off screens and hitting catch and shoot threes. That's what he does really well. So not having guards that can get him the basketball really, really hurts him. Yeah, for sure. And I, I, I thought this Milwaukee, and I, I never really fault a guy for wanting to stay home and play for his dad. I, I think that's actually kind of cool. Um, but I thought this Milwaukee situation was going to be a really good opportunity for him to show that he can be that number one guy, that he can be the lead scoring or initiating option. And I think as you kind of just laid out there, he's just not in the right role for him. And yeah. if you draft him with the view that, okay, this is going to be our next Paul George or Jason Tatum our you know, six nine primary scorey score on ball initiator type thing. I think teams are going to be and fans are going to be really disappointed because I don't think that's who he is. But so I if you're viewing him in that lens right now, I get the disappointment. But how much does your view of him change if you if we are thinking of him as that secondary guy, as that tertiary guy, even where he's just off ball, he's knocking down jumpers off the catch he's attacking closeouts he's doing those ancillary things that don't require him to create opportunities for himself or others yeah I think tertiary is probably the way to think about him Mm -hmm. Uh, I describe him as a little bit more like Michael Porter Jr.'s role with the Denver Nuggets like if you can surround two really good scorers and playmakers and just simply space the floor like maybe you have a dribble pull up every now and then or you know, when one of those guys is out of the lineup, you can play with your back to the basket and hit some of those turnarounds. But you should be catch and shoot pretty much the entire time. And that's that's the ideal role. Mm-hmm. Now, what I found looking back at the FIBA tape was that he was used a lot more in that way. Spotting up in corners, coming off screens on baseline inbound situations, running the floor a little bit in transition where he'd get dunks and, and wide open threes. And this is the tough part with Baldwin. He's shooting, what, 31.9% from three through, I believe, eight games that he's played. He's been out with an ankle injury. I believe he had COVID for a bit of time. Mm -hmm. It's been a very disrupted season for him. So it's hard to judge the rhythm of that right now. But he only shot 32% from three in FIBA. So while the looks were a lot cleaner, it it is hard to go out on a limb and say, this is a guy who's a knockdown shooter when he just gets catch-and-shoot looks. No, the last sample that we saw, he was only about 32%. So there's a little bit of trepidation there, but I think you can look at the FIBA film and say, we know how to best simplify the game 
to get the most out of him. And if you can project that his shooting, because the stroke is beautiful, mm-hmm. if you can project that that's going to translate, you can feel pretty comfortable about keeping him in the lottery. Yeah, so I, admittedly, I know very little. I, I, I'm not a shot doctor. I, I don't know the, the minutia of sh- shooting mechanics, it, but with Baldwin, it, I can see it. And to me, at least, it looks perfect. It looks gorgeous. Um, but as you said, those percentages just quite aren't there, certainly this season. And as you alluded to, not even at FIBA. How worried are you, if at all, about that translating to the NBA? Or do you think it's just one of those things where he just needs to kind of find his groove and then once it kind of starts clicking and he's consistently in you know, an NBA developmental program and practice and all that kind of stuff, um, do, you, do you see that turning around and start creeping closer to the, the kind of 40% mark that people would probably hope for um, if they're taking him top 10? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, on a scale of 1 to 10, in terms of worry, 10 being I'm frightened out of my mind and don't want to touch him, 1 being he's going to shoot 50% from 3, and I know it. <laughs> right. uh, I'm at like a 3 or a 4. Okay. I'm, I'm really not that worried. Okay. Um, and is that just because the mechanics do look so sound to you and you just think it's a rhythm thing for him right now? Yeah, mechanics, reps, I think weight room is going to be huge for him. You know, he he lacks a lot in terms of strength, physical development, lateral quickness all areas that NBA level strength and conditioning programs are going to bring out the best in him. I also think that improved cardiovascular condition with some of those quickness items really going to allow him to be more consistent as a shooter. Okay. Um, so I, 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 I as well assume that the shooting will improve um, in the NBA, but besides the shooting and the mechanics and all of that, I've been really impressed with this passing, um, not necessarily his playmaking, but when he's, in the mid post or has his back to the basket. I think the way he just moves the ball has been really impressive and he's able, he, I, I feel like the ball doesn't stick with him a whole lot and he's the offense can flow pretty naturally and fluidly through him besides the shot. Is there anything that you're seeing from him or that you think he will bring to an NBA team to really help the rotation in a positive way. That's not just spot up shooting. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought up IQ because for me, it's kind of the defensive end where I see his IQ. He's not a very good on ball defender, mm-hmm. a little bit high waisted, doesn't play low enough to the ground, lacks lateral quickness at an elite level, but he knows where to stand, positions himself well, and makes pretty good reads off ball. Um, I, I think length is a, a huge tiebreaker in a lot of those areas. If you have yeah. a big wingspan and you can cover ground, you can be a, a positive help defender. And I think Baldwin will turn into that eventually. Uh, But that's been maybe the one area besides his shooting that stood out to me is that he's maybe a step further along than a lot of freshmen are in that area. Okay. Um, So, so I guess a common complaint that I've, that I've seen with Baldwin and there, there are a couple instances here and there that I didn't love, but I think some of it has been overblown, but is the motor and that he gives up and doesn't try. Where, Where are you at with that? Because, and historically for me, you know, guys who don't play hard, I don't love, and I don't want to invest, you know, immense draft capital into that. But is, do you think that's more just kind of situation or they're down by 25? So he's not fake hustling against or to chase this guy down in transition. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know. Like motor as I, I'm a coach, right? And right. I, motor bothers me on a daily basis. Right. If I don't see it, but sometimes for these prospects, like, I I think that there's for a lot of them when they're not playing winning basketball or games that are really, really important, it's hard to judge exactly what that might be like in an NBA playoff situation, which ultimately is what you draft for, right? You draft guys to make an impact in the playoffs. So I'm not over like it's on the radar. It's not something that's talking me out of Baldwin right now. For sure. Um, so someone who's motor and certainly is defense who I've enjoyed, uh, especially recently is Peyton Watson, who had probably one of the most significant falls down most draft boards. Uh, and I think a lot of that was because he just simply wasn't playing much at all uh, to start the season. But these last five or so games, uh, things kind of seem to be clicking a little bit more. Uh, the box score numbers aren't overwhelming by any means, but he's playing tough defense. He's picking up guys full court. I think he's starting to show off his rebounding and shot blocking capabilities. So do do you think this recent stretch of more consistency and fluid play and impactfulness from Watson is 
what a, a better example of what we can expect from him going forward, or do you think it's just a blip in the middle of the season? Yeah, it's um, it's a tougher one. So the time I wrote the FIBA piece, which is about a week, week and a half ago from where we're at right now, this was really right on the heels of his first time getting a little bit more of a crack in the rotation mm-hmm. in Pac-12 play. So this was on the heels of a game where they had lost to Oregon at home. And he played 21 minutes, and he was solid. Mm-hmm. But the whole premise of the article was, why is he not in the rotation? Is it just UCLA having way too many upperclassmen guys returning from a Final Four team that has championship expectations and a freshman who might be not as far along defensively or isn't a great catch-and-shoot guy just doesn't fit in well, right? Looking for ways to justify not dropping Peyton Watson down our overall board. And I was very not impressed by how he played in the FIBA tournament this summer. Okay. I thought everything that he got there was built on transition and mm-hmm. his overall athleticism beating up on, you know, like a, a South Korea team that probably has no business being on the same floor as a guy like Peyton. Right. So uh, taking a lot of that with a grain of salt, his catch and shoot numbers were not very good. His assist to turnover still kind of struggles because he wants to be a score first type of guy. And now these last few weeks, he's really turned it up defensively and is starting to buy into, okay, this is how I make an impact. I'm athletic. I guard multiple positions. I pressure, pressure, pressure. That allows me to live in transition a little bit more. And I got to start knocking down threes. And I think over the last five games, he's up to 33% from three. It's nothing crazy. He's like three of nine. But Mm -hmm. at the very least, it's allowing him to get a little bit more playing time for the Bruins. So, I mean, of those last five games, he's played 21 minutes, 23 minutes, 16, three at Colorado, which is a stranger number, yeah. and 15 at Arizona. So there's definitely still inconsistency and trust that he needs to earn from Mick Cronin and his teammates. But I have been impressed with what I've seen enough to say, this is probably still a top 20 to 25 guy in a weaker draft class. So I, I guess we'll, while we're on the defensive side with him, how how impactful could he be on defense in the NBA? Um, and I, I know now it's it's so hard to play guys who are complete zeros on offense. So I know he'll have to at least show something on that end to really be able to fully utilize his defensive capabilities. But as you kind of went through the minutes there, like we're slowly starting to see him gain a little more trust in 15 minutes against the third ranked Arizona team, I think is, is really promising, especially for a coach like Mick Cronin and a team like UCLA who, you know, recently lost to a top ranked Gonzaga team at the beginning of the year. So they want, they wanted that win badly. Um, and he was picking up Dale and Terry full court, forcing turnovers, getting out in transition, blocking guys at the rim. So how how impactful in the NBA do you think that de- those defensive characteristics and traits can be, or is he just going to struggle too much on offense to make to be able to make that much of an impact? Yeah, it's it's hard to say. I mean, he has in the the four games that, or excuse me, the five games that he has played twenty minutes or more, he has seven blocks. Yeah, like he's he's very impactful defensively from a statistical standpoint, and I love guys that can guard both the three and the four really really well. He's athletic enough to do that, and in a matchup like Arizona where there's a point wing like Dalen Terry, somebody who handles and is a little bit bigger, Watson is perfect for that type of matchup. So there's a lot of versatility to how he can be at his best defensively, and the NBA has really trended more towards combo threes and fours over the last few years. Like You look at the NBA Finals last year with, I guess Giannis is a little outside of the uh, the realm of positions right now. But, you know, kind of a a Giannis Middleton swing forward group where with Phoenix you have Jay Crowder at that three slash four spot. The the league's trending that way, a little bit smaller on those wings and playing two of them at a time where switchability and being able to guard both is really important for Watson. Now, I mean, you said it. You can't play zeros offensively, especially in the NBA playoffs. And Watson right now is amounting to something close to that in the half court. He's just not providing much floor spacing, Mm -hmm. much high IQ playmaking. He'll have a a good pass here or there, and then he'll have a really bad turnover or a play where he's supposed to cut back door and he just doesn't recognize it. So those are the the little areas that he definitely has to learn. I just, 
I, don't know, I keep relating it back to this draft class, right? And trying to figure out if there are 20 or 25 other guys that I would talk myself into taking above the defensive potential and, and a little bit of the offense that Peyton Watson might be able to figure out. And I, I'm still not sold on anybody else to the point mm-hmm. where I'm clinging on to some of that Peyton Watson stock and saying these defensive performances and just his overall athleticism should be enough to have somebody give him a look this year. Yeah, no, I, I, I really love hearing that from someone else because it makes sure that it, it ensures that I'm not, you know, over here taking crazy pills and seeing the so, something no one else is because I, I've been clinging to Watson in that that late first round um, because I think he has like at least a, that raw foundation yeah. to work with. Um, but as we've mentioned, the offense needs work. Um, the three he knocked down against Arizona, it looked solid, and then the net won a couple minutes later he missed and hit the opposite side of the square um how fixable do you think his mechanics are at this point and or is it just something where once he gets with an nba team they're pretty much just going to need to completely rework everything yeah i I mean i think they're fixable in the point that there's at least some fluidity to what Mm -hmm. he does where it's not a complete complete overhaul it's tweaking you know one two maybe three types of movements and and trying to see if that is enough to do it. But just because something is closer aesthetically than a shot that's broken doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to stick and he's going to fix it. Like I always find projecting who ends up becoming a better shooter at the NBA level is kind of a crapshoot. Some guys who you never thought would end up turning into really good shooters, like Lou Dort has been on fire. Mm-hmm. You know, other guys that you expect to add range, you say, oh, he's a good free throw shooter. He's good in the mid-range. He'll eventually add it out to three. Like They end up never doing it. So I've kind of you know, given up trying to exactly project which, not, which non-shooters are going to turn into mm-hmm. that. Uh, just sort of believe that with Watson right now, he's not a disastrous form uh guy right now to the point where you'd say man there's just so much to overhaul that i'm scared of even trying yeah and i and i I would be pretty surprised if the shot really came around in a legitimate way and at least in the first year um but early in that his career while he's working on those mechanics or the consistency all of it with the shot what is he offensively because i feel like over the summer reviewing some of his high school tape before the season started, I was kind of impressed with some of the passes that he would make and some of his on-ball initiation. And it's like, okay, there's something here, but then you look at the other team and they're half his size. So that obviously factors into it as well. But he, I, I feel like that hasn't really come through at UCLA yet. Do you think there's any of that in his game or is it pretty much just going to be crash the offensive boards, cut, spot up in the corner yeah so one of the major rules of scouting is just because somebody doesn't show you a skill doesn't mean that they can't do it right Right. so there's a lot of reason to believe that because of how ucla runs offense and the the dynamos that they have like tiger campbell running the point juzang and haquez need a ton of touches and to play through Mm -hmm. them a a large amount like watson's never going to get the ball in a half court setting where other guys are coming off screens and flares and backdoor cuts to try to see what type of high IQ passing he has. It's just not going to happen. So I'm not ruling out whether it can translate from high school to the NBA. I I think his ideal offensive role, or at least the most projectable ones, are somewhere between Robert Covington and Andre Robertson, right? Where he ends up being, if he can build that jump shot, a solid catch-and-shoot threat. Like Covington, he probably takes a few too many. Mm -hmm. Um but is athletic enough to bull guys over to the rim if he gets there, solid backdoor cutter. Or you're like Robertson, where no one guards you in the half court, and the only way you score is off backdoor lobs while everyone stares at Russell Westbrook in the lane. So, you know, it, it's it, there are some worries offensively, and, and I am the first one to put my hand up and say, this is not good right now. But I always think about pre-drafts kind of at the final few spots in the first round, right? Is there somebody that you want to snatch up now that a year from now you'd be kicking by saying he's going to be too high and out of our draft range? Why not invest that year early, try to develop him yourself and see what you can get? And in this class, I think Watson is at the top of the list of those guys just because he's so dang athletic and can be really, really good defensively. 
Yeah, so that that kind of feeds in nicely to where I, I wanted to go next with this, and it's so. Do do you think that he does declare and come out, or do you do you think there's any chance that he goes back? Because at at this point, I'd be kind of surprised if he did. Um, but then it's weird to kind of try and envision what the best situation for him would be, whether it's on a bad team just getting a bunch of reps and trying stuff, or being buried on a contender and just being allowed to really focus on development and not worry about really any production expectations early in his career. Where, where do you kind of fall with that? Uh, I, you know, I think Watson probably should come out if there's anybody that's sniffing around talking to him in the first round. Um, and, you know, I always try to look back and I'm actually looking right now at who's going to be pushing him out from the bottom at UCLA, right? A huge part of this conversation that I think needs to be talked about more on whether these guys will go back to school is, hey, what's the freshman class going to be like next year? Sure. Am I actually going to get more touches, or is this a the same situation? Like, I, I keep going back to Kentucky because mm-hmm. John Cal Calipari loads up every year on freshmen. It's a gamble to roll the dice and come back as a sophomore at Kentucky because you may just get beat out by those younger guys, and now you've completely killed any draft stock that you might have had at one point. So UCLA has probably two of the top 10 or 12 players in the nation committed to them. Big man Adam Bona from from California, prolific prep kid. He's awesome, but more of a back-to-the-basket type of guy, like shot blocker. I don't don't think that that's going to go really well with a non-shooter like Watson. And then you've got Amari Bailey, one of the top guys in the country who signed to go to UCLA, and you know he's going to play with the ball in his hands a lot. So looking at the the future in Pauley Pavilion, it's hard for me to say – this is going to be a great, like, just go back and get better and improve on this or that. Work on your jump shot, prove the scouts wrong, and you'll move up. Like, you know, next year's draft class is going to be heavier in the lottery area. So there's mm-hmm. going to be less, there's more competition to move up and less chance for him to do so. And I don't think that the situation that he stays in at UCLA is ideal. That said, he still has to have comfort in what his you know, range is going to be right now in order to declare. If every feedback he gets from scouts and workouts and interview settings is you're a second round pick, he probably has to go back, right? You would think so, um, but that, that that's where the whole situation and yeah. with who's going to handle the ball, who's going to be that offensive guy, how is he going to contribute on offense and get his minutes? That's where it becomes really messy, and there are just a, a couple guys like Watson in that kind of pre-draft range where I am incredibly fascinated to just see what they do a few months from now, because I I don't think there would be anything that really surprises me, whether they stay in or go back or transfer or go overseas or go G league or whatnot, because I I think there's so many different ways. And a a guy like Musa Diabate kind of falls into that category um, for me as well, because they continue to improve, but it's like, ah, but there's, there are some really glaring holes where it's like, is an NBA team really going to spend a first round pick on you? I don't know. Yeah. I'm, I'm even starting to get there with JD Davison at Alabama, right? Like mm, his yeah. high turnover rate, he, he keeps dropping himself into so many different categories because, you know, you're supposed to be a pick and roll guard at the next level. We kind of excuse it because you share the role at Alabama with Javon Quinterly mm-hmm. and he's just so inefficient in those areas. It makes it really hard to take the gamble on saying we think he'll be better when he's more of the focal point of that offense and plays with the ball in his hands more. Like, I don't know whether he's even on the fringe of, of coming back or if, if he's still a first-round guy. There's still a lot of basketball left to be played in this season, and there are a lot of fascinating guys, like you said, that are right on the fringe of, should I come out and be a first-rounder or do I go back to school? Yeah, that, that that's really funny that you brought up Davison because in our No Ceilings chat, we actually were just talking about that exact thing earlier today. I was like, God, at this point, does he actually come out? And it's been so disappointing. I I don't know. Um, but like you said, there's a lot of basketball left to be played. But another SEC point guard who has kind of been disappointing has been Kennedy Chandler. Um, I, I still I still want to buy in on Chandler. I still have him I like right in that fringe first round um, because I, I think a lot of what he does is really interesting, but he is really small. Uh, NBA hates small guards. He's listed at six foot. That is probably generous. Um, he might be one of the quickest players in the country, but I feel like he doesn't really fully utilize that in the half court 
a whole lot. Um, I think he's just kind of a, a so-so ball handler. Um, but he's started to use that quickness, attacking closeouts and doing more off ball, which I think is kind of interesting. But overall, this point guard class is pretty weak, yeah. um, depending on how you want to classify Johnny Davis and Jaden Ivey. I think they're more off guards. But um, why do, why do you think Chandler has fallen so much from his preseason hype because he was one of these top point guard recruits. He was listed in a lot of places in that mid first round. And now I'm seeing him not even in the top 30, top 40 in a lot of places. So what do you think has been the the main reason for that? Tyler, how many point guards that are really small in the NBA right now are sub 30% three point shooters? I, I'm, I'm going to guess zero. Yeah, I, I don't have the exact number, but like Ish Smith is the exception of the rule, right? Like <laughs> right. There's, there's not a lot of guys. And, and frankly, you don't draft an Ish Smith in the top 20, probably. Right. You take a guy like that a little bit later. So, you know, when, when we see guys like Rajon Rondo and Ricky Rubio turn into solid three point shooters late in their career, yeah, you have a little bit of a chance for this. But here's the thing with Chandler he started the year. Eight for 10, excuse me, eight for 12 from three. Eight for 12. Since that point, which is Thanksgiving, he's shooting 25% from deep. And when you're that small, like to me in the NBA, you're kind of going to get drowned out if you just try to play within the trees. And he's a good finisher. He's Mm -hmm. a a very competent passer. I don't think he's as elite as some people have made him out to be. Agreed. If If you're choosing between him and Sharif Cooper from last year. I think Sharif is a way better passer, creator, ball handler. But the appeal for a guy like Chandler is he's sturdier defensively. I don't know if I'd go out of my way to say he's a good defender, but he's competent for a smaller guard. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly has longer arms and is able to have a statistical impact. I think a lot of those metrics look kindly on him. But in the postseason, it's a very simple game, and we've seen it time and time again. If you're a little guy on the floor – You've got to either completely negate the matchups that they're going to try to attack you in or just produce enough offense that you outscore it. And I'm worried about the fact that he can't necessarily play off ball and the fact that he doesn't punish teams that go underneath ball screens. It's just it's it's a worry for me seeing a a smaller guy who doesn't shoot it really well from three. And, you know, I'm going to kind of kill some airtime right now as I'm looking up the the answer to the stat for a, a question that I'm searching for, but trying to wonder you know, what does Chandler shoot on, you know, ball screen pull-ups right now? And give me give me one second as I'm, I'm getting all this right here. His dribble no, jumpers off the pick and roll, he's 5 for 14 on the year. Which 35%, like it's solid yeah. in a lot of ways, but it's not good enough, right? Like mm-hmm. if you're going to be a undersized point guard and be drafted in the first round, you've got to be really, really good on that. And, and he's just he's sub 30% on all dribble jumpers in the half court. That's, that's not good enough for me right now. And I think that's why he's starting to cool in a lot of those areas. I like the passing ability. I don't love it, but I, I'm not sold on what the one hang your hat on his skill. There is to become a really good NBA point guard, because if it's just going to be, he's a good finisher right now. I think that number goes down against NBA level rim protection. Yeah, I, I'm glad that you mentioned the at-rim finishing because I over at No Ceilings the other week, I, I broke down his at-rim finishing, and I, I was actually pretty encouraged by it, the way he uses his body and the, the just some of the subtleties around the rim. And I, when he dribbles off a screen and takes it to the rim, he's in the 98th percentile in scoring, which I think is really encouraging. But like you said, against NBA-level rim protectors and athletes and defenders, I think that plummets, especially if they can just go under everything and he's not hitting shots. Yeah. And if you're not an above the rim type of finisher, mm-hmm. like that's, that's the worry, right? Like right. It, it's, I don't want to put the ball in the hands of a six foot guard whose hang your hat skill is I'm going to finish at 48% at the rim. Cause I'm so crafty. That's right. just, I don't love that. Right. Well, and to make matters worse in that realm, he's not drawing a ton of fouls. He's not getting to the line a whole bunch and he doesn't have a way to really counter when rim protectors just drop all the way back to the rim and they just dare him to score in that mid range because his mid range pull up isn't good. His floater is searching for the number here. It's in the 27th percentile, which is 
awful, really. Yeah. Um, and if you're going to be that small, you have to be able to find ways to score in that intermediate area with floaters and stuff like that. Otherwise, you become really easy to guard, especially if you're not hitting threes when you're, you know, or w- when the defender goes under the screen. Yeah, I, I mean, I have an update in my big board in maybe three weeks or so. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, you know, my own team's playing three games a week and, and we're, we got a lot of other things going on. So when I have the time to dive into that one again, we're going to have some updates. I fully expect Kennedy Chandler to be a second round guy. Yeah. Oh, okay. So that's kind of what, what I wanted to ask next is, is it too reactionary, this precipitous drop that he's had? It doesn't sound like it. Do you think there's a way for him to kind of climb back into that discussion or is it just kind of at a point where he just kind of needs to keep working on his game and improving and going back to school? Uh, like you said, situation obviously matters. I, I, I'm not sure who they have coming in at point or who their top recruits are off the top of my head, but do you think he's kind of played himself into for sure going back at this point? Yeah, I don't, I don't think that. And part of the reason for that is which guy that's a freshman in this class outside of the guys that we now talk about in like the top six are clear cut stay in the draft guys. Like, I don't think, I don't think there is one. It's just, it's, it's a strange year. So I'm not putting money on, on Kennedy Chandler going back to school. I'm just, I'm not overwhelmingly high on him because again, I don't see what that one hang your hat skill is. He's fine defensively. He's a good, but not great pick and roll passer. He's not very good in the mid-range with the floater, like you mm-hmm. mentioned. The shot's not falling from three, and his finishing doesn't scream, this is what could be my best trait in the NBA. So I'm just I'm, I'm struggling to find what the attraction is to a guy who's good but not great in a lot of areas. And that and his fall has played a part into this, but that the point guard class on a whole has been pretty underwhelming, um, with kind of the exception of Ty Ty Washington, who... Personally, I, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm lukewarm on, I kind of get it. Um, I get some of the attraction, but I feel like a lot of people pushing him into the top 10 is just the weirdness of not having a single point guard in your top 10. It looks weird. It's like the NFL when there isn't a decent quarterback and it's like, well, we have to put someone in the top 10 because there's going to be a guy who goes that high. So from that standpoint, do you really, could you see, I guess at this point, Ty Ty really only being the, or the the lone point guard drafted in the first round, or do you think Chandler plays his way back in there, or Davison, or Jean Montero for that matter? Yeah, I, I mean, I think we're going to end up getting a few point guards that are taken in the first round. So right now, looking at my list, like again, Jaden Ivy, Jonathan Davis, Ty Ty Washington, kind of combo guard ish. Same with Dyson Daniels. Like these are guys who aren't necessarily pure points but can mm-hmm. do something with the ball in their hands I, I think Davison is a first round guy beyond that I think the next point guard on my board is listed at 31 right now so uh, it, it's very well possible that that ends up happening and they fall out of it but there are going to be some teams that probably reach a little bit for guys because the difference between 26 and 40 is fairly negligible Sure. Um, and I, I've already taken you down a point guard rabbit hole that I, I, I did not inform you I was going to. Let's keep so going. Let, let's, <laughs> I'll, I'll try and steer back a little bit back towards the, the whole crux of this conversation, which was your FIBA piece. And how did Chandler or what you saw from Chandler and FIBA, his, did, did it align with what we're seeing now from him or is it underwhelmed even to that extent? He was better in FIBA. Um, better, but I'll, um, I'm sorry to hijack the pod, but I'm going to, I'm going to steer it in the direction of what I know your next question is here. Chandler is the second best point guard on that FIBA team. Okay. He, he just, he was, and this season, I think that's been backed up with the play of one of my favorite sleepers in this draft and the guy that I would consider taking in the first round, Mike miles out of TCU. I'm, I'm a huge fan because I think he's got that complete game. Mm -hmm. I think that he's incredibly cerebral and I just I trust him a lot more defensively as an undersized guard than I do pretty much anybody else in this class like I don't trust Montero defensively I I don't have that much trust for for Chandler I think he's solid 
Um, but Miles, I, I think, can be one of those smaller guys that, for lack of a better term, like gets in your stuff. Like he's he can defend when he wants to defend, and he plays really hard and really smart and blew me away a couple weeks ago when they played Baylor. Just yeah. blew me away. Yeah, and I, I appreciate you do, doing my job for me. Uh, the, the, <laughs> this is this is incredibly easy. Um, I, I have absolutely loved Mike Miles and what he's kind of shown and the improvement. And so w- when you look at his raw numbers, there's if you don't watch him play, I feel like you, you really have to see him because what he does on the court, his gravity, his range, his shot versatility, I think it all really plays a factor into – you know, they're the kind of underwhelming numbers right now. And he's a lot for that TCU team. But he's also, you know, in this theme of small point guards, I and mean, he's listed at 6'2". I, again, I think that's an inch or two generous. Yeah. Um, do you I mean, have he's any... He's built like a tank. Though. Like yes. he, he, he does play closer to 6'2", even if he's not that height, just because he's very well built. Yeah, so I, I take it that you think that his physical limitations won't be as damning necessarily as Kennedy Chandler's in the NBA. Yep. Yeah, I agree. I think he's got a little bit more vertical pop to finish at or above the rim. I think he handles and initiates contact a lot better. And and beyond that, he's not that much older. Again, he was able to play on the same U nineteen team this summer. So a lot of a lot of times we look at class year and not age. Mm-hmm. Like Mike Miles is younger than Chet Holmgren. Yeah. So there again, very slight difference between those two, but just being able to find that Miles is a sophomore and his numbers don't look as good from a statistical or an efficiency standpoint in year two as they did in year one doesn't mean that he hasn't gotten better. He's gotten a lot better, and he's done so in really, really impactful ways where, like you said, he's the heart of that TCU team. He does everything in a lot of different roles, and when they need him to command the offense, he does. It doesn't always result in him scoring 25. Sometimes it does, but it doesn't mm-hmm. always. And, and I really like that about him because the, the context of some of that stuff is really important. And I, I think one of the gripes with Miles is, or the criticisms that will get laid on him, is that he's a small score first guard. Um, how do you feel about his playmaking? Is it a case that, kind of like Watson that you mentioned earlier, just because he hasn't shown immense amounts of it doesn't mean that it's not there. Is it more situation-based and that team just needs him to be that scorer a lot of the time so he's not necessarily looking for guys or is he just not as advanced or is he not capable or currently capable of making those really advanced playmaking reads yeah so miles um, as i'm looking it up right now had four assists per game to only 1.1 turnovers in 21 minutes of action for the FIBA team this summer Mm -hmm. So his assist to turnover ratio, much better when, guess what, he's not the focal point of every defensive scouting report and there are three guys that are collapsing on him on every drive. Like, that's what he's been facing at TCU, and for him to still be producing at the level he's bat is impressive to me. But he stood out as the most impressive guard for that FIBA team because of his passing. The shooting is there. He can be a good three-level scorer, and I love how he initiates and handles contact at the rim but it was the proactive passing reads. I think there are some guys who are good passers in the sense that when they have three defenders on them, they make a kick. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know if that's necessarily a good passer. It's someone who's just making the right play. But Miles is proactive. He reads when the defense is about to commit somewhere on his teammate, on a drive he makes off the pick and roll, and he's accurate. You know, Passing is about being on time and on target, not just identifying what you need to throw. And, and he throws some ropes across court. I mean, Baylor came out and trapped him at the end of the yeah. Baylor TCU game. And he was throwing, you know, two foot jump skip passes overhead, just on a dime right in the guy's hands for catch and shoot looks. Unbelievable passing accuracy. I love that. I love that. So I'm, I'm a huge miles fan. Um, and again, in a weaker class, I think I'd feel more comfortable taking a guy who's closer to five eleven than six two. Um, at the tail end of the first round. Yeah. And so I, I, I've said this probably uh, almost every podcast now, but f- for the new listeners and for you, um, I, I frequently delineate between passing and playmaking as passing is finding the open guy and delivering an accurate pass and 
having it be on time and playmaking is passing guys open, making those proactive reads and moving the defense and all that kind of stuff where like in the NBA, I kind of attribute Tyus Jones to being a great passer and LaMelo ball as a great playmaker, you know, that you, you can cross over. Neither one's an insult or anything like that, but it sounds like miles kind of falls more into that playmaking bucket where he just because I, I think it's, four assists to like 3.6 turnovers right now this season. But like you said, he's the focus of the team, but it sounds like you are more in line with thinking that if he is that third scoring option in the NBA, that he will be able to find those open shooters and set them up or set up the big man a a little more effectively than at least he's showing currently at TCU. Yeah. I think of him as that career like sixth or seventh man right a really good guard who plays in a couple spots solid off the bench because you know what he's going to give you like Mm -hmm. almost a patty mills type of role right where you know he's a good shooter and can play off ball he's physical and competitive and smart he's not the biggest guy in the world but he he does defend and he's a part of winning basketball as a result what 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 about his defense do you love so much? Because at, at his size, at least height, height wise, mm-hmm. um, because he, he is stocky, he is built. How, how do you view his defense translating? What does he do so well that will make him a competent or NBA defender, or at least not a liability? Yeah. Two things that I always go back to are quick first step, strong chest. So if you can keep a guy in front with his first step and square contact to your chest then he's going to have less ways to get around you. If you have a strong chest, he's going to bounce off of you and not be able to get into a quick counter move. I think that those are those are the two areas that I identify with Miles right now. Um, again, when you're a smaller point guard, you're going to have trouble at a lot of times in the NBA in the postseason and, and find areas that you're going to get picked on. And he's going to get picked on at the next mm-hmm. level. But I feel much more confident in his overall offensive package to more than make up for that and I think that the strength and IQ that he has is going to allow him to be one of those guys who negates that defensive disadvantage more than others. So we, we, we've mentioned our disappointment or lack of enthusiasm towards this overall point guard class. And there's a huge opportunity for Miles to leapfrog some, you know, quote unquote, bigger names and entering the season. What do you think he has to do to really move ahead of Chandler and Davison and Montero and kind of cement himself into that, you know, potential first round conversation? Yeah, I, I think they need probably a signature win in conference. Um, he needs to be a more consistent scorer because since getting into just Big 12 play, he's averaging 13 a game, shooting 33% from the field. So yeah. he started to cool off a little bit. You know, he's also one of those guys who is very inconsistent with free throw attempts. And and it's one of those that I don't really know what to make of it. He's played 16 games this year. He has eight games with six free throw attempts or more. He also has one, two, three, four, five, six games with two or fewer. So there's very little middle ground there of he's either super aggressive and handling contact well or he's not and he's more off ball and kicking and and very indecisive on whether he's going to be able to turn the corner i think that the overall consistency over the next month or so is important i think tcu probably needs a signature win over one of the better teams in conference and quite frankly needs to be an ncaa tournament team because if we're talking about this guy leading a program despite the fact that he can be inefficient or the focal point of every defensive attack they still got to win games no, absolutely. And I, I really hope we get that from him because once that consistency does start showing, we're talking about 15 to 20 points or more on a nightly basis because he, he has that skill set. And I, I, I'm buying in more. The more I watch of him, it's it's really hard not to like. And like, like you said, that Baylor game was so impressive. And we got flashes of that last season with him in his freshman year. And this year, it, it feels a little more consistent despite our talk of lack of consistency mm-hmm. um but he he feels like the game's slowing down for him which yeah. i i think is really important and really encouraging because we don't always get that but coach thank you so much for your time i really mm-hmm. had really enjoyed this we end every episode asking 
what's the best thing in the world of basketball you saw recently? Uh, it can be from the NBA, college, your own team, something in the driveway, uh, a, a single game, a stretch of single performance, a single play, whatever. All right. I will uh, jump the gun on a lot here because I'm licking my wounds a little bit. We lost to a, a really good uh, high school team last night, Mount St. Joe, here in the Baltimore area. And they've got a sophomore who uh, goes by the name of Bryson Tucker, started on the U16 team for the uh, United States that won gold this past summer. He's eligible, I believe, in 2025. So, I mean, we're looking way down the uh, the pipeline here. But he gave us 24 last night and got to anywhere he wanted on the floor. He's like a 6'6", 6'7", point guard, Oof. tremendous player, really poised, able to do a lot of different things, unbelievable touch around the rim, great passer, I just I was blown away uh, by by this young man and, and think that he's going to be probably one of those guys that we talk about at the top tier of an NBA draft class in just a few years. So a really quick preview that I unfortunately had to experience myself last night, uh, but a really good player coming down the line. I was not expecting 2025 draft talk, uh, but I, I absolutely love it. What, where else can you get 2022 draft breakdowns and 2025 previews uh just in- incredible stuff uh c- coach once again thank you so much please please tell the people where they can find you how they can support you and if and tease and plug away yeah well, thank you tyler always uh happy to talk with you and anything i can do to support no ceilings moving forward we're, we're happy to do this is a, a more than happy partnership that we have with with our two spots here but you can find all my work at the box and one which is on Substack, adam spinella on youtube or follow me on twitter at the box and one underscore that's O N E underscore uh, right now doing some prospect stuff. We do quick hitters on, we call it the weekend updates, stealing some work from SNL every Monday morning, our own box and one podcast as an episode coming out around the same time as this one with the great Matt Penny and trying Love to it. dive into um, a little bit more philosophy this time of year. This is when I start to think, you know, hot take after hot take tends to roll out there and we're being reactionary to midseason mm-hmm. fluctuations. So I'm trying to take a break from deep dives on prospects and just say, let's reset the board and make sure that I'm focused for the stretch run of the season and really putting the board together. Love it. Please, please, please go follow and support everything. Adam Spinella, Coach Adam Spinella does over at the Boxing One. It's really good stuff. His YouTube channel is also some of the best draft college analysis that you will find. Um, So I I promise you will not regret following and supporting him. But once again, I'm your host, Tyler Metcalf. You can follow me on Twitter at tmetcalf11. And please make sure to subscribe to the No Ceilings Substack at noceilings.substack.com, where you can find all of our work. And follow us on Twitter at No Ceilings NBA. The Substack is completely free and gets delivered directly to your inbox. So there is zero excuse not to subscribe. Uh, please also make sure to check us out on YouTube at No Ceilings TV. We're continuing to to pump out content out there. Um, and if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating. Until next time, see you.